available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner, gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together, we make the Podcast of Champions, talking all things Pac-12 football. We're hoping there's going to be Pac-12 football this fall, maybe not as optimistic as we were a we're, couple of weeks we're ago. We're hoping, but we're not hopeful. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Yes. Uh, I was hopeful before, and I was hoping. I can. You convinced me to be hopeful, which is a real, like, that's a tough task. But uh, we have since fallen down into the morass of uh, Dave Wood's negativity. Yeah. Well, we got a lot of notes to talk about, about what's going on in the college football world. If you have any questions or comments... For us, please send us an email, pac12podcast at gmail.com. We got a couple weeks worth this week because David and I were both had crazy schedules last week. We weren't able to record a show. Apologies for that. If you have any questions for the voicemail line, you want to send us a text, you can do that too. 424-532-0678 is the number. You can tweet us at pac12podcast. The website where you can find all the old shows is pac12podcast.com. Then on Apple Podcasts, if you got a, you know, your iPhone, your iPad, you got a Mac somewhere, anywhere you have the Apple Podcasting app, please subscribe there. Please rate us. Five star ratings are the best. And if you don't like the show, give us five stars and then insult us during the uh, in the analysis part. Just give us give us a few lines of why you think we're terrible, but leave us the five stars. That's the perfect way to do it. Uh, I don't know if we've got any recent ones, Dave. Oh, we've I'm- got we've got seven new ones. We've got a backlog oh, to get through. Uh, this is from DJ Hissif. Hard to hard to pronounce this one. It's a lot of consonants. Uh, listen every week. I see this podcast has a five star rating, and I think it's all the proof needed to show once and for all that the star system does not work. <laughs> Good. Uh, this is from New Men. Interesting. The opposite. When I listen to your show, most of the time it reminds me of Seinfeld. So this five-star ranking is really a one-star ranking. Good, good. So it's like opposite day, or what yep. was that? The- well, so Seinfeld, it was the um, it's the Costanza. You know, oh, whatever yes. your instinct is, you just do the opposite thing. And he like every, like everything went. He came up roses after he did that, right? He was right, like, and yeah. and you and you are Jerry Seinfeld. So this fits. People do think that. Like I get that one a lot. Yeah, which is funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Trek Racer, great podcast. Ryan and Dave provide the best news and discussions of Pac-12 football. All right. That was weird and sincere. (laughs) Uh, This is from Late for Tea. Uh, Here's more my speed. Ideal for schizophrenics. The fact that a schizophrenia medicine company is the sponsor of the podcast says all there is to say. Interesting. I wouldn't know that because I don't listen to the show. Uh, Yeah, that was a good one. All right. 
this is from Alez. I don't know how to pronounce French. Alez Lacougs, something like that. All yeah, Alez Lacougs. Yeah, okay, sure. Uh, a must listen. I'm a huge fan of the People of Color podcast. <laughs> Not sure why the hosts are two white guys, but regardless, this is hands down the best American history podcast around. For some reason, they occasionally talk about Pac-12 football, but the good news is that the football discussion is always kept to a minimum, so it's still worth a listen. In all seriousness, I'm a big Husky fan, and I still look forward to hearing this Trojan and Bruin banter about anything and everything their listeners throw at them every week. This is genuinely my favorite podcast of the many I listen to. I recommend it to anyone who is looking for a good laugh with some college football thrown into the mix. Perfect review. That is Perfect. right. And I, I got to pull it up, too. I can read a couple. Uh, history from Conan D. 222. Sure. Uh, I haven't learned this much about the merits and failings of Civil War generals since high school. Dave's negativity and Ryan's sweet. Uh, it, I'm sorry. Sweat, sweat equity. <laughs> oh, my God. I just swallowed something bad there. I'm sorry. My sweet, my sweet equity, my sweat equity is doing most of the work for the podcast. Truly stand out. Thanks for keeping us college football fans entertained during an unforgettable 2020. Thank you so That's much. Nice five right. stars. Yeah. yeah. And final review from uh, Terry and Lynn. You've got to listen. Ryan and Dave are the most self-deprecating and humorous guys on any podcast that I subscribe to. Although they are extremely self-critical and often the self-criticism is warranted, they are tapped into the Pac-12 and the conference should thank them because for the last several years, the Pac-12 hasn't justified being being tapped into by anybody. But alas, there is a bonus here. In addition to Pac-12 recording, these two also discuss other aspects of our daily life and culture, serious and important topics. But also, and more importantly, the arcane, the absurd, the enigmatic, and the mysterious. And with the coronavirus slowing down Pac-12 news, they have had ample time to discuss alternate, alternative, alternate topics that are either uh, raised by listeners or simply fall out of the ether. As an example, I refer you to their recent dialogues about U.S. presidents and more to the point, apples. But as Ryan and Dave often do, I digress. If you want to keep up with what's going on in the Pac-12 with more erudite reporting, you might want to look elsewhere. But if you'd rather have coverage that is both informative and entertaining, I recommend and give five stars to this, the podcast of champions, and to Ryan and Dave, champions in their living room. Terry in from Las Vegas. All right. That was, that was amazing. That was great. Now I'm pumped for the show now. I'm excited. You know, lots of positive feedback. That's great to hear. That was good stuff. All five stars. People are uh, doing a good job. So yeah, thank no. you. Thank you for all let's, that. Let's um, disappoint some people now. Yeah, well, then we we take a week off, and then people like they're they're missing us, I guess. So I know, I know. Yeah, uh, it's very nice. Hopefully, everyone had a great Fourth uh, of July weekend, holiday, whatever. I know everyone's just staying inside and putting their masks on and all that fun stuff. But oh yeah, tons of fun. Uh, L.A. was like blowing up. Uh, like, did you see Literally? the fireworks? Yeah, yeah they were, and, like... and then the air quality the next day. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably pretty bad. Well, there's just so much less traffic. I think air quality in general is better. But after that, I mean, that was that was insane. and they were like, you know, the city, the beach cities were very much like no more displays. They're not going to do any fireworks displays. You're not allowed to do fireworks. And I think just canceling all the fireworks displays just made more people shoot them off themselves or something. I don't know, because it was like I've never seen that many before. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty intense here in Georgia. I want to say they were going off till like 10 and 10 o'clock or so um 11 o'clock maybe um but it was like pretty intense i think that speaks to um some things you just want to have a little bit more regulated right like from the city angle 
Like, you don't want people to just be able to fire off fireworks until the wee hours in the morning just because, oh, we didn't have a display this year, so let's just do it ourselves. Because then you end up with basically a million miniature fireworks, like, displays because people are like, oh, let's make up for the fact that there's no community display this year. And then suddenly you have, you know, toxic air the next day and nobody slept that night. Yeah. Uh, well, I like, so growing up on the East Coast, we, when I moved to Massachusetts, we were 11. Uh, they didn't have fireworks there, but we lived in really Western Pennsylvania and fireworks were illegal there, but we were like 10 minutes away from Ohio and, and they were legal there. I just remember my dad going over and getting like grocery bags full of fireworks and coming back. And we had like a big, like half acre yard or something, just setting them off in the backyard. And I'd gone back for, to, to visit my like aunts and uncles there on the 4th of July. And that was like, let's go buy a bunch of fireworks. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and you can buy some good stuff. Like I can, it's like, it's not like sparklers. Like you buy some things that look like, you know, the big plumes or whatever that you shoot up there. It's like, wow, that's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. I want to say, um, I, so I had, um, I have older siblings and when, um, we were kids, my sister and I went with my parents, uh, on like a camping trip over the 4th of July and my brothers, um, and my older sister stayed home and while we were gone, my brothers procured a bunch of illegal fireworks and set them off in the backyard. And they mostly got rid of the evidence, but there was this like longstanding, just like huge burn on the fence from one of those sparklers. But oh. yeah, even back then, you could get some great stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty nutty. I haven't I haven't heard of anything horrible that happened, but I haven't really paid too much attention. But hopefully, hopefully everyone was safe and. Uh, no one got uh, hurt doing off their own fireworks and stuff. But yeah, you're right. Like you're still like, oh, I'm going to go watch the display. And then. Yeah. I and it's, it's a discreet 30 to 40 minutes and then you're done. Manhattan Beach was smart. They do their Christmas fireworks every year. Like for like they do December. So they had a really good show then, but no more now. So, um, yeah. well, we got some topics. Uh, we do. David. There's I actually uh, wrote some stuff in the document today. Cause I did. So I don't know if it's an experiment. But I didn't like I was like doing a lot of other stuff today and mm -hmm. David did. Mm -hmm. So props to props to him for doing a little research. I like that. I think it's contrarianism, right? Like you didn't do it. So I'm like, oh, OK, fine. <laughs> then I guess I have to do it. <laughs> now, don't but get then, used to that. Right. Now, it's supposed to teach I'll, me now, to... when when I feel like you're doing it intentionally, that's when I won't. But this time it felt unintentional. So I got to re respond with intention. It was unintentional, so I appreciate you uh, you bringing stuff to the table today. This is shocking. So let's see how this, the show goes. Hopefully, it can still goes smoothly. But what do we got first? We'll okay. Well, uh, our our man John Wilner, um, great great Pac-12 aficionado, uh, he tweeted out some intriguing stuff this week. Uh, but one of them was uh, this idea that the Pac-12 and everybody more or less should just just drop the idea altogether of even trying non-conference games this year for a whole host of reasons. But among them, look, the FCS might not even have football this year. It, more than likely they won't. There's going to be inconsistent testing patterns between teams um, in different, you know, kind of levels of football. Like the FCS schools probably can't afford to do the level of testing that a power five school is going to do. Um, a group of five schools probably not going to be able to do the level of testing that a power five school is going to be able to do. So just drop the entire idea, the scheduling, all the travel, all that stuff, keep things kind of within the family more um, and drop it to eight games instead of nine with a bunch of flex scheduling built in. So you do it over the same 
rough span of time, um, but build it in so that there are flex weeks so that if a bunch of guys are quarantined one week and a team can't play, they can maybe make it up two weeks from then on a on an open week um, for both teams. Um, it's it's a I, I think as far as anything is a good idea right now. I liked it. Um, I think it has merit. I don't think non-conference play makes a whole lot of sense this year. Um, I just, I'm skeptical about fall football at all now. Um, and I think even, even if you limit it to conference play, even if you limit it to eight games, even if you push it back to the end of September, we just, we haven't gotten this thing under control at anywhere near the level that like countries that are actually starting up sports again have been able to, um, and it just seems like we're trying to go forward with it without having a lot of the backstopping that you need to actually do it correctly. Yeah, it's uh, the more you think about it, the more that does it really make sense to fly across country or whatever and play a football game? Um, I don't know. And like, you know, USC's opening with Alabama and Dallas. You want to bring everyone from Alabama to another city, you bring everyone from LA to another city. Uh, you know, if you're talking about Ohio State going to Autzen, like maybe it's okay for like you at least have one team that's staying home. Um, these neutral side games seem like you know much less likely, but you're right. I mean, I don't know if 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 there's if there's a way they can make it work, that'd be awesome. But the the conference only idea, um, it seems like it's gaining more ground. And I think if you remember, I think it was like a month and a half ago or so, Pete Thamel wrote. I think it was Thamel from Yahoo wrote about. Why don't we just move it to the spring now? Make the decision. You can get all the TV stuff lined up, and then you should be safe by then. Um, and then at that point, and I kind of flew it out there. I'm like, yeah, that seems like a pretty good idea. And it did not have any traction whatsoever. Nobody was talking about that. Um, everything's at that point pointed towards let's do things to you know get things on schedule to start in the fall. And it seemed like, okay, that's the priority. That's what everyone wants to do. They really didn't want to entertain that. Um, now it seems like it's being entertained. Some people don't like the idea of moving it to spring. Other people do. I just think we need to make a decision soon, Dave. I, I just don't know if we can sit around waiting for another two, three weeks and not make a decision because a lot of stuff has to happen if the season is going to start on time. Yeah, I think you could still wait a little bit. Um, basically, camp would start for a lot of teams at the end of July, early August. Um, and that's really when you need to make the call, which is in two weeks. I don't think it's likely that many teams are going to be doing that because, frankly, throughout most of the football playing uh, part of the country, um, cases are rising. Deaths are now rising. I mean, Texas, California, Florida, Arizona. Um, I think between the, those four states, you're talking about a lot of, of um, FBS football. Um, each of those states is is definitively rising in terms of not just cases, but deaths. Um, and I think if you're looking at that, you're looking at the fact that there aren't real government down lockdown measures in place to prevent this from getting even worse right now. It's just, I just don't see how it's even feasible. Um, and so I think we're going to get two weeks from now. I think a lot of schools are going to start. And I think over the next two weeks, a lot of schools are going to start making calls. Um, if we should note this right now, the Ivy League has canceled all fall sports until January. And yeah. I think a lot of people have made the valid point on Twitter that, well, the Ivy League is a non-revenue, you know, the whole thing. 
And I get that. But also, if you remember back in March, what was the league that was kind of the bellwether for whatever for everything else that happened soon thereafter? The Ivy League shut down its conference tournament before anybody else. And then everyone else followed suit pretty there pretty soon thereafter. Um, it just so many little data points that aren't even really related to sports, but Harvard going fully online, USC now saying that it's going to be online for the most part in the fall. Um, UCLA had already more or less said that all of these things accumulating, it just does, it does not make any sense to play football too. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think fall is going to be really, really tough. Um, and I don't think, I I think they can wait to make a call until August 1st, but at that point, I think it's going to be obvious that it's not happening and they can keep kicking it back. Like if they want to, they can say, okay, well, we'll reevaluate in a month or we'll reevaluate in two months, but I think it's probably best to shoot for spring, um, which comes with its own host of challenges, which do you want to talk about that now? Like how spring football could kind of be a challenge? Yeah. So like uh, I know Matt Leiner tweeted out, you know, he said they're going to talk about it on their uh, big noon kickoff show. He thinks it's a terrible idea, mainly because it's a lot to, you know, it's a lot of stress on a college football player's body to have two seasons in one year. There's really no time uh, to recover. Um, you know, I talked to coach Harvey Hyde did a USC show earlier. He thinks that wasn't the, he thinks, you know what, like they don't practice as hard as they used to. So it did, you know, won't be as difficult to, to play more games in a, in a season. I know you have other ideas on that too, but, uh, I'm not, you know, I think you could do it in the spring and then do something kind of delayed in the fall. But, um, what do you think? Yeah. What I would do is if you're planning for, I think there's a lot of people who are just shutting down the idea because they're still really invested in having football this fall. And I get that, but I think they're like being a little too, a little too inflexible about the whole thing. Of course you can play spring football. It just requires staggering the next season as well, but okay. You're talking about two seasons and you could do one of two things. You can stagger them and keep the season lengths the same, which I wouldn't necessarily do. Or you can just say, okay, we're going to play conference games only the next two years. So this year, you're only playing conference games between January and March. And then the next year, you start in, say, November. And you play through the end of January. Okay, now you're you're done. And then you can start the next season on time. You know, you're shortening the offseason recovery by, I don't know, a month at the back end. Um, but overall you're getting in, you know, 18 games over the next two years where you otherwise would have gotten in zero. If you tried to do, I think if you try to do a regular season this fall, that's, what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, I I think it's totally feasible. I think there are other complications in place. I think if the spring football is intended to start later, if it's not intended to start in January, if it's instead intended to start in like March, that I think might be more of an issue because then you're talking about having to stagger the next season even later. And on top of that, you're really getting into complicating factors with um, the NFL. Um, and all that, in addition to what do you do in cold weather states? Because it's one thing to play in November in Michigan. It's a whole different thing to play in, you know, zero sub zero temperatures um, in Ohio and Michigan in January. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, it that you know that could be combined with conference only and delayed and staggered. I think there's a lot of options there, but I think we're getting close to figuring out when we got to figure this out fairly quickly. And like we've said a million times, there's no cultural bazaar, so 
is it going to be, you know, after the Ivy League, are we going to see like the Mountain West or somebody just postpone things? Or is it going to be a group of five, I mean, a power five conference come out and say, hey, we're not going to be able to play this fall. We're going to delay things to the spring. Um, And if they do that, then they have to do it on their own. I don't know. I'm not sure how this is going to work, but everything interacts. So there's like, there's no, no one at the top making the call, but like, even if the SEC decides to play, it, they're probably only going to play with themselves because everyone else at that point might be canceled, you know? They're only going to be playing with themselves. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I don't think the SEC is going to play. If everyone else is not playing, I don't see the SEC playing. And I know there's a lot of people who are saying, oh, no, the SEC is going to play no matter what because of a, like a perception of the whole thing. But no, I, I, I really I, I think the conferences are going to act in pretty much lockstep with it. Um, because if you remember... After the Ivy League shut down, yeah, they might have been like a day or two apart, but everyone else shut down within a couple of days, uh, their conference tournaments. Um, So I think it'll be a nearly lockstep. I would imagine the Pac-12 is going to be one on. The Pac-12 has the most kind of built in. um, uh, Like there's enough regionality to it that I think they can announce first and just say, hey, this is what we're doing. You guys can decide yourselves. Um, but you know, like the big 12, they've got like, you got West Virginia out here. You got, you know, Texas schools over here. Like you're talking about like a weird 2000 mile range. There's no way they're playing conference games either. Um, so I don't know. I don't think there's going to be football. Like, I don't think there's going to be football in spring either, because if, if it has to go till March, like if it starts in March like, do you see them realistically starting a football season in January? I mean, I think that's. I think that's a lot more feasible than. Well, I think it's more feasible from from this vantage point because September seems so non-feasible. But I, I think we're going to get to November and realize that January isn't feasible either. Because um, yeah. we're, we're going to be heading into cold weather, which um, with virtually any virus is not necessarily a good thing. Now, this one hasn't slowed down much because of the summer, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to get even worse over the winter. And that's not to be negative. That's just like looking at it realistically. I think we're going to hit into November, December, and then realize, yeah, we're not starting anything in January either. Um, So I don't know. I I think it's going to be a really interesting uh, couple of weeks right now. And then going to be really interesting to see what happens over the coming months. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we're, we are, we've seen some weird stuff happen across the country, but there's been some Pac-12 fallout. Uh, Stanford, Stanford Cardinal, uh, they had the most sports of anyone in the Pac-12, I think in the country. Um, they're cutting 11 sports. Like, they're cutting 11 sports. They're still going to have like 27 or 28 or something like that. But what did, what did they have? I think they had, no, they, 36. they'll be down like 36. They had, yeah, so they they'll be down to 25. 36, they'll be down to 25, yeah. Yeah. So I think Cal has the most now at 28. Um, but that was a little shocking to me that they would cut that many sports um, at this time. Just like right, right now, we're just going to cut all these sports. Uh, it's like, that seems crazy to me. Well, and I, I, Stanford's wealthier than God. Like they've got so, they've got a huge endowment. Um, the budgetary reasons for doing it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um so I, I'd be interested to learn more about this. Maybe we can, you know, talk to somebody from Stanford or RJ or whatever, um, because this seems bizarre. Wilner seemed skeptical about the reasoning as well, that it's like strictly budgetary. Um, so, 
yeah, it's it's kind of just strange. Um, they they cut a bunch of you know kind of tangential sports that don't really mean anything, like lightweight rowing. I don't even know what that is. Um, but they also cut men's volleyball, which Stanford was pretty good at. Um, I mean, they win titles and all this stuff because they're like the only ones who play it. But men's volleyball is like a real sport, especially on the West Coast. So, um, yeah, it was that's that's certainly interesting. And I don't know if it's just them using this opportunity as cover for doing something they wanted to do for a while, maybe. Um, but yeah, that one is uh, that one's concerning, and it's going to be interesting to see if there's any more dominoes that fall in the Pac-12 in terms of other schools cutting sports because. UCLA's budget situation isn't great. Cal's budget situation isn't great. I don't think anyone's budget situation is awesome right now. No. Uh, and I don't know if you want to mention that, too. Like, there's the Cal and UCLA are dealing with an apparel deal that was great at the time with Under Armour, and now that looks like that's going away. Yeah, yeah. Under Armour is attempting to get out of its – well, probably will get out of its – just a question of how much money they're going to have to spend. They're attempting to get out of their UCLA deal – I haven't read as much about the Cal situation, but I think they're in basically the same boat um, where and it's unclear still whether um, they're attempting to use. I hope I'm not butchering how to say this force majeure. Sure. I think you're right. Um, yeah. yeah, they're attempting to use that to, you know, basically, which is like the natural national natural disaster clause uh, to get out of the contract. It's unclear if that's what they're actually using or if they're using some basic level of performance whether you know ucla or cal fulfilled their end of the bargain uh but regardless um it looks like you, under armor will not be the apparel uh provider for ucla because i don't know how you walk back from this even if they are forced to stick to some level of the agreement so i think the hope is for ucla in particular at this point is to somehow secure a buyout or some sort of compensation for the attempted void of the contract um, and then sign on with somebody else pretty quickly here because they, I think Under Armour was scheduled to deliver this year's apparel on July 1st, which is why this kind of all started. And I, I still haven't heard whether or not they delivered anything. And I don't imagine they would have if they were trying to cancel. Yeah. Um, so that's not great. Um, that's a big part of UCLA's uh, financial situation is um, they got a big cash payout from Under Armour every year. Um, you know, double digit million dollars. So um, not having that coming in. And then in addition to that, IMG, which holds, I think, the multimedia rights for many Pac-12 schools, including UCLA, is also trying to get out of its obligations or restructure its obligations, which is putting another issue um, on the plate of incoming athletic director Martin Jarmond, who just started this month. So wow, he's got a, a lot, a lot to do. See, here's where, you know, I cover USC. When you have bad leadership and you sign bad deals, like their bad Nike deal and all that stuff, then you don't have to worry about it. They keep the deals even when things turn sour because the deals were bad to begin with. You go out of your way and sign this amazing Under Armour deal that you can't get, can't believe how much money you're getting paid. Things turn south, the deal goes away. So who's smarter in this situation? The the idiots that made the bad deal or, or the smart people that made the good one? I don't See, know. there you go. There you go. Yeah, it's... um. It's uh, there's there's some risk with it being owed a lot of money. That's yeah. true in every walk of life. Speaking of uh, bad deals, and the truth is, we all know Champagne Larry likes to roll large, right? <laughs> Champagne Larry, that's our buddy John Canzano, and he wrote a uh, pretty interesting column uh, this week about Pac-12 presidents and chancellors putting the squeeze on the conference, and basically the conference bosses 
have been ordered to take pay cuts. So there was some criticism before. Larry Scott makes $5.3 million a year. He was going to take the, you know, a, a pay cut for three months, and everyone's like, that doesn't make any sense. Now anyone in the you know, conference that makes over $100,000 is taking a pay cut. I think it's a 9% overall decrease in expenses with salary reductions, and it's between like 5 and 10%. For most people, 12% for Larry Scott. Um, there was definitely some, he talked to some sources in the PAC 12 that thought that, you know, why doesn't Larry Scott take a half, a 50% pay cut Then you don't have to like cut other people's salaries who are struggling. You know, you make a hundred grand and you're live, trying to live in San Francisco. It's not, it's not super easy. I think you're gonna get a lot of sympathy, but you're, you know, you have a Larry Scott making that much money. I get it. He should probably cut his expenses in half, uh, or, you know, just his salary in half and you would save the conference. Uh, a ton of money. They pay $8.1 million a year in rent, I believe. Uh, that's kind of crazy. He also had a $1.9 million loan for a house that he got back in, I think, 2009 that uh, a source said has not been paid back uh, one penny. So no, there's a the, the loan is outstanding, no change from last year. So he hasn't paid any of that back. Um, so it didn't seem like this email. What is that it with said, giving free stuff to exorbitantly wealthy people? Like, what is that? What's the, like, the the psychoses at play there? I don't know. Like, when you get paid that much money. Um, you should have to pay a lot of money for everything you do. Like, you should be like charged an extra tax. You should have to pay $10 for every gallon of gas you get. Everyone likes free stuff. And so if you get a free loan, um, if that's a part of the incentive package, like, they're trying to convince Larry Scott to come run the, the conference and they feel he's the best guy for it, which obviously that's been a mistake. That's one of the things they throw in there, you know? And yeah, I mean, the I, reality is nobody's, nobody's worth that much money. Who's an executive for some sports league. Like, is the sports league going to make that much less money with me running it? No, it's going to be the same. It, it would make the same mo- no, it'd make more because you wouldn't get paid as much as him. So that's, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but apparently yeah, there's no, a lot he, of pressure too of, of, you know, there's only two presidents left. I think UCLA and ASU that brought uh, Larry Scott in. So there's a lot of talk out there that they might buy out his contract because it ends in 2022. The new TV deal would be 2024. So there's talk that they could, you know, get him out earlier and get somebody new in. So I, I just don't see how you continue with Larry Scott at this point. He did some good things early on, but since then it's just been. It's been bad. I think he's trying more over the last couple of years, but he just was acting like a guy in the ivory tower from the, you know, from the get go. And I think it's just the PAC 12. It's not that, you know, it's not the SEC. The SEC doesn't act like the PAC 12 does as far as arrogance goes and the way they spend money and everything. And the PAC 12 makes less money. It's just, you can't act like that. So I think they need someone that's a little more shrewd as far as investments go and figures out a way to not be, you know, it's going to be more of a blue collar guy, uh, even though maybe that's not the, yeah. Uh, you know, the temperament of the, the conference. But I think I kind of feel you need that right now, Dave. You need someone that's going to, you know, roll up their sleeves and get dirty and figure out a way to be as competitive and poss- as possible with the other power five conferences. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I, I think with with the way. So with with our anticipation for what the Pac-12 is going to look like this fall, I there's not going to be any Pac-12 sports. Why wouldn't just furlough the leadership like why wouldn't you just self furlough if like the goal is to actually like be fiscally solvent like that should be what they do because what 
what purpose does Larry Scott serve when there are no sports going on? And none on the horizon. Like, the earliest that they might start... Like, let's just be realistic. The Ivy League doing what they did, that's probably what the Pac-12 and all the other leagues are going to end up doing anyway. So, if they're not starting up till January, then, okay, you come back in December, but we're not eating your salary for three months. Yeah. Well, he also... He's a he's the CEO of a media company, too. So, I mean, that's A why. media company that's, like, <laughs> going to be showing... They're going to be asking for the rights to this show... To play like audio over like just still imagery of like Pac-12 football from ten years ago. Just yeah, how have they not by on the their way. stupid network? They, they should have put us on Skype. Just like we would be a TV show. Like no question. Why would they not do that? We would. Like, uh, I, like I'm not trying to like toot our horn here, um, but like our rabid. 30 listeners would <laughs> I think that would be more viewership than they get on like half their programming. Yeah. No, I I mean 100%. We we would kill it. Like compared to whatever they're doing now. Um yeah. We'd I probably have to change we'd probably have to change our tagline cuz it would be kind of um I don't know, it would be kind of circular at that point, right? You want to you want to change our tagline? Put us on the Pac-12 network and then we change it. <laughs> That's right, cuz then we are literally in as many homes as the Pac-12 network. Yeah. Uh, we are in as many because we're in the Pac-12 network. Yep. Uh, well, okay, so all and then um our buddy uh, you know, John Wilner, that you know, he does a great uh hotline newsletter. So there's been a shift in power and it's going all up to the Pacific Northwest. So he wrote a a, a column this week also, so basically, there's uh, the chair of the conference CEO group. So that's all the presidents. Uh, Oregon President Michael Schill took charge. So he's taking over. It was uh, Phil DiStefano, uh, who was with Colorado. He was a two-year chair, but he was also in the, the, uh, the CEO group for, I think, four years. So he's now out of the CEO group. And I believe they added in uh, the president from Washington State, Kirk Schultz. Yeah. So, um, so he's so the stuff the stepped down as the chair. His term on the executive committee is complete. So now they've added another Pacific Northwest school, and it's based on like seniority and things like that. It's not you know they're not like well you need another Pac-12 South person, but you have Washington, Washington State, and Oregon now in that group. So it's it's really a Pacific Northwest kind of favorite thing. But I, John likes the idea of having that because all those guys, all those presidents are, uh, you know, football focused. Um, so it's not like they're going to ignore football, but it's, uh, yeah, it's great. So that if you're a Pacific Northwest person, you are well represented in that PAC 12 CEO group. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. Does that bother you? Make you is that weird at all? That no no problem or I don't really have a problem with it. No, I think it's fine. yeah. But it was uh, Arizona State's Michael Crow and uh, Gene Block from UCLA. So they've been around the longest, and those were the guys. Those are the only two left that had brought in Larry Scott. So, um, you know, we'll see. It's uh, you know, there's a lot of turnover at that CEO level, just like the coaches. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I I feel like with the new leadership. Um, there's going to be more pressure on Larry Scott, and that's a, that's a good thing for all Pac-12 fans, in my opinion. Yep, absolutely. All right, anything else? I think we're good. I think we can get to questions now. All right, well, let's take a quick break, come back, and uh, answer some questions. 
Hey, hey, we're back here on the podcast of champions. A lot of newsy stuff we had to get to. So much stuff. We actually talked about football or football adjacent things for <laughs> Christ. Was that 40 minutes? 30? 35? It was quite it was quite the the run there. I, I finished um before we get into the questions, I finished uh Grant. It was it was so definitely good. very good. Yeah. I was thinking of Maybe a book on all the U.S. presidents, so like little tidbits on all of them, because I, I I loved getting the refresher on Grant, and then you get all the stuff around Grant, like Grover Cleveland or what, or you know Abraham Lincoln and uh, Johnson, all those. You know, you get everyone kind of around him, but I would love to get like more of a just kind of an overall history of the presidents. I don't know if you have a book that you like that would do that. Um, not on just like kind of general presidencies. I think that would be a little too high level um but so Chernow, who did grant he also has a good one on um teddy roosevelt um that i was in the middle of and then i lost track of um but he's also the one who did hamilton if everybody watched hamilton um, i haven't watched that yet so i want to check it out so yeah he did i mean he wrote the biography that was the source material for that um he did one on washington he might have done one on adams i think um but you could probably go through his whole thing i think i'm gonna work on a biography of my man uh J- joe Steele, uh joseph stalin here pretty soon uh, yes. by robert service uh stalin I want to check that one out. I have that recommended to me. Um, Dude, the ball, so I'm going to read that one. You need balls to like kill all your best generals just because you're. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, destroy yeah. all the architecture in your city because, you know, but why then, not? Like, like, you don't want churches. Kinda sing- but then kind of single handedly like beat the Nazis, you know? True. Yeah. Like, that's kind of cool. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe but I'll yeah, try no, some. I, that sounds I'm, I'm good, interested. though. I'm interested to uh, to learn about uh, our man Joe Steele. Yeah, insane. Uh, but I, so like, <laughs> maybe I'll pick another good president because like, so you get with Grant. Obviously, you started with Lincoln and and Johnson. Uh, you get the Rutherford B. Hayes, Garfield, and I think they went into Chester Arthur Little and Grover Cleveland some at the end. But um, you kind of get the people around the that president. So I did a Teddy Roosevelt one. Maybe I, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll think about it. But if anyone has any good recommendations, because I'm kind of into like Dave definitely knows a lot more about the presence than me than do, me right do now. Do a team of rivals. Do a team of rivals. It's good. Team of rivals. Okay. Team of rivals. It's the Lincoln book. Read that. All right. It's all about That's... um the passage of the Thirteenth Amendment. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it and it was amazing, but you know, and how much Grant did and how, you know when reconstruction was going and all, I mean, just how much, you know, African-Americans, you know, the form, you know, freed, the freed slaves, how much power they actually had. And then like, it all goes away and like it take, you know, and still trying to come back from it. But it's, he did a lot of good stuff. So anyone that wants to take down a, a statue of Grant, I want you to read that book because I don't think you'd feel that way if you uh, knew all the stuff that he did. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. Should we actually get to some questions now? Yeah, let's do that. Sorry. I just wanted to let everyone know that I finished. It was good. So thank you for the recommendation, Dave. That was, it yeah. was really enjoyable. Yeah. I'll let you know if the uh, Stalin book's any good. I mean, he was kind of a monster, so we'll see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he did beat the Nazis, but he didn't have a problem like throwing, ah, let's throw a couple hundred thousand troops at those tanks. Like that's fine. Let's, we'll eventually uh, like, kill them. Beyond that, like l- let's throw a couple million people in a gulag. Like no, there was that too. That's not cool. Yeah. 
Not great. Not great. Um, All right. Here's from our man, Hithliday. Cassandra. On the April... Oh, man. (laughs) Come on, Hithliday. On the April 26th, 2018 episode... You boys proclaimed that Chip Kelly's 34-3 and conference record at Oregon was unimpeachable. The next week, I wrote in to ask whether that was actually true, given that 29 of those 34 wins came against head coaches who would be fired and never returned to a Power 5 head coaching job. At the time, I suggested that Kelly's success at Oregon was much more a product of inheriting a stable program that had been ascending for the previous 15 years, whereas UCLA was a dumpster fire he had no experience extinguishing. Naturally, you boys dismissed the point as revisionist history. Weren't the warning signs that Kelly would be unsuccessful at UCLA, in fact, all present in the spring of 2018? The persnickety NFL performance, the lackadaisical and NCAA-sanctioned recruiting, and the insensitivities he displayed? Uh, to be fair, I remember that show. I was pretty drunk. So, I, you know, that's that's all <laughs> I can say, Hitler Day. Um, yeah, some of, so I was, I was kind of narrowly... Uh, concerned about so I didn't I'm trying to remember if I saw much of spring ball that year Um, I think I came out for a few practices I was narrowly concerned about recruiting at that point Um, I I thought it was starting really slowly and poorly Um, but I was I was holding out hope that the like what I was hearing about the offense because there was talk of tempo in practice there was talk of you know, seeing some elements of what he was doing at Oregon offensively in practice, that I was kind of holding that hope that that would be what showed up in um, in the fall. What concerned me deeply was watching the spring game, which was kind of my first impression of it, like, you know, seeing it, what it would technically look like during a game, sort of. Um, and it looked like an absolute conservative, awful mess um, offensively. That's the first thing that kind of gave me real pause about the on-field product. Um, but so I, I understand what you're saying about Oregon, because obviously Bilotti had put in place a pretty good program. Um, but I think we all saw what Chip did there um, and how he took, you know, what was a pretty good car and turned it into a Ferrari for four years. Um, six years, if you want to count as two years as offensive coordinator when, you know, Dennis Dixon was going off before UCLA, um, before he tore his ACL, I guess, before the UCLA game. Um, anyway, uh, that's all a long digression. So I don't, I think you could have obviously looked back and said, yeah, looking at the data points from all those NFL years, um, there's reason to think that's, that shouldn't have worked. There, there was reason enough to think that it wouldn't work out at UCLA. Um, and I think a lot of people, myself included, were just kind of convincing ourselves, well, you can ignore that and just hope it's back to the Oregon stuff. Hope he learned his lesson. Um, and, you know, now looking at it, maybe there's more merit to and he inherited a lot of Oregon and just was able to take what was a humming machine and, and just add a few tweaks to make it something really special. Um and maybe that's the way we'll look back on him when his career is over more. Um, but at the time UCLA hired him, he was still offensive genius who did well at Oregon, offensive genius who did well for two years at the Eagles, and then somebody who kind of just got away from his fastball and, you know, maybe it'll work out for him at UCLA. And it hasn't, and it probably won't. It, to me, it's kind of one of those things like those child actors that are, like, typecast and you don't want to, like, you know, you know, if you're... Uh... 
you know, whatever, I don't know, some child actor that's a famous part. You're Ricky Schroeder and uh, you had to change your name to Rick. Like you're trying to, I don't want to be Ricky anymore or, uh, you know, anything like that. You're trying to get away from like what made you great. And some people have been able to do that. And I, I don't know, Chip Kelly just seemed to want to do something different than what he was doing before. And I don't think he, I think everyone assumed you could recruit because you're at UCLA and you have this innovative offense and you're going to do well in the Pac-12. And he got away from both of those things. So the two things we thought would he'd be successful for, he didn't do. So at, at that point, you're like, okay, well, we assumed he was going to do that and he didn't. Uh, and it wasn't like he tried, he didn't try to replicate what he was doing at Oregon. He tried to do the opposite. And I think that's where he just ran into problems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, just a little breaking news. Ohio State has halted voluntary workouts in seven sports, including football, following the results of its latest round of COVID-19 testing. Ruh-roh. Also, um, there's a report that Wilner just retweeted that the Big Twi- Big Ten, if it has football in 2020, will likely only be conference. So. Lots of things appear to be moving in a particular direction. All right, continuing with Hithliday's email. Uh, during David Shaw's five-year heyday at Stanford from 2011 to 2015, his conference record was a similar 37-8, and eight, excluding games against Kelly. But like Kelly, 30 of those wins came against coaches who retired or got fired and never got another Power 5 head coaching job. Is David Shaw just a Chip Kelly who never left? Mm, I mean, if you start, like... He won these games, except, well, if you don't include those, and then this is the reason why he won those games. Like, you could do that for everybody. So I don't I don't like that. Um, no, I don't either. And I think it's reductive uh, to just kind of lump these guys in together. Um, Shaw inherited what was a truly humming program, like even beyond what Kelly inherited in Bilotti, and then kept it humming for four years, five years. Yeah. Um, and then it's been kind of a slow decline since then. Um, so I don't, I guess what I'm saying is I don't know if they're perfectly analogous. They're two different situations, but if you want to say they're two guys who maybe their best days are behind them as a coach. Yeah, I think that's fair, but I don't know really what we're saying there. And I don't think you can look at, man, watching those Stanford teams, the 2011 Stanford team, the 2015 Stanford team, those weren't just a product of their competition. Those were really good dominant teams. The 2015 team was a slip up in the opener, a 9 a.m. opener at Northwestern from being a playoff team that year. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to like reduce these things to just oh the the Pac-12 has largely was largely bad between besides Stanford and Oregon for you know six years. Well, okay. But those were still dominant teams, and you can look at advanced stats metrics to, you know, kind of give you your basis for understanding there. But um, those Oregon teams, especially, were super elite, and yeah. uh, and Stanford was not too far off. I agree. Um, all right, uh, and then finally, I suspect something similar will prove to be true of Chris Peterson's 36 conference wins, albeit 20 conference losses. I doubt the last decade has actually seen any elite coach in the Pac-12. And the guys who clean up are simply marginally better than the awful coaches opposing them. In my opinion, the preponderance of bad coaches rather than the exceptional presence of a couple of good ones is the far more important factor in the history of the conference. Would you boys care to revisit the subject? Um, I think that's I, I think that's right, but I think it's not quite as strident as you're putting it. I think the Pac-12 has made a habit of hiring bad coaches, and there have been a lot of bad hires in the conference, and so it has made... Um, guys who are relatively good stand out, but I don't think that's necessarily um, 
I think it has actually led people like yourself to be able to make this conclusion, which is that, oh, because they only beat up on these, you know, teams, they actually weren't that good where, well, they've got to play the teams they're against. They've got to play the coaches they're against. And it's not Chris Peterson's fault that he was coaching against, I don't know, who was in Oregon State between before Jonathan Smith? What was his name? Gary oh, Anderson? Oh, Gary like, Anderson, yeah. It's not his fault he was coaching against Gary Anderson. Um, it's not his fault he was ho- coaching against Zombie Helfrich. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, was Peterson at good, as good at Washington as he was at Boise State? No, probably not. Um, Boise State was maybe a better fit for what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. And offensively, I think he got – I think people evolved past him. Um and I think that might be a larger thing that goes beyond the Pac-12 is how many coaches ever stay elite? How many of them, like, they're just able to churn out elite season after elite season after elite season with no drop-off ever? Because I think can think of, like, two, Urban Meyer and Nick Saban. Um, yeah. But otherwise, there's diminishing returns after a little while because it takes a lot to continue to evolve and continue to be open to – new ideas and new thoughts and football's an evolving game. Um, and so I think David Shaw, that's one critique you can make. I would, I think for Chip Kelly, you might almost say it's over evolution. Um, he's tried to do something completely different from what he used to do. Um, and he's kind of fallen on his face doing it. Um, but I think he's making that attempt. And I think Chris Peterson, I think you can make the argument that he didn't evolve enough. Um, but I think that's maybe the larger thing, which is, uh, unless you're one of these true freaks of nature, like a Saban or a Meyer, um, it's hard to stay elite. It's yeah. hard to be that same guy every year for decades on decades. I think it's a really good point. And, you know, we're seeing Dabo Sweeney get, you know, getting in that, you know, he's getting there. Yeah. Um, but there's challenges. And when you lose assistant coaches, you know, maybe you had a great staff and you put it together and you make like this five year run or whatever it was. Well, now you got to replace these guys in a lot of ways. Um, and you don't, or if you don't do it in the, in the you know, you, you do it in a way you're like, I, I felt like Pete Carroll did this where he had a great staff. And as people started to leave, he's tried to create his own staff. So he was promoting like grad assistants and stuff, like keeping it internal as opposed to, okay, we just lost our running backs coach. I want to go out and find the best one in the country as opposed to, well, this guy played for me. I can teach him how to be a great coach. And I'll promote him. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like that was he started to get a downfall because of maybe some ego and and not getting along with Norm Chow and things like that. Where Nick Saban's proved year after year he can lose. I mean, he's lost so many head coaches, you know, guys that went on to be head coaches, and he continues to perform at an extremely high level. Um, you know, we don't know what Dabo is going to do if Brent Venables leaves. You know, um, you know, try to replace these like. Stalworth, just these coaches that you know are amazing, uh, isn't easy to do. Um, you know, we, it, I think Ed Orgeron did a good job of kind of shuffling things up, finding the way he wanted to build that staff and, and did a good job at LSU. Now you lost guys. You, how are you going to build it again? And I think it's one of the, it's one of the many challenges you have as a, you know, when you become an elite head coach, trying to stay on top is, is probably a lot harder, I would say, than getting there. And there's only a few guys that have done it. So it's amazing what Shaw's done, um, but it's hard to maintain. And his one of his big flaws seems to be he's loyal to a fault. You know, it's not just he's not evolving enough, but he's also the loyalty factors there. 
he won't get rid. You got to get rid of staff members if you're four and eight. Like I don't care how how good do you think they all are. You're four and eight. Get rid of some guys. You don't do that. I, that's a flaw, and I think that's going to be. He might have success two or three years from now, but it's going to be hard to have success year after year if you're not able to recognize problems and make changes. Not just because you've had you know a poor season or you know a lack of success. You have to be able to project that out and see that out. Have the vision to go. You know what? This just isn't right. I picked this guy to be my offensive coordinator, but it's just not what I think. I'm going to get rid of him and get someone else in here and, and fix this. Um, not just be loyal because I hired the guy. Now he's my guy. Yep. Totally. Uh, all right. Thanks for that hit today. This is from Matthew from Mountain View. Pac-12 presidential over under fact check. Uh-oh. Hey, David Ryan. Garrett from West Virginia came up with a pretty awesome email last week testing some inane and obscure presidential knowledge. Unfortunately, one of his answers was incorrect. Uh-oh. Uh, let's see. He asked which was higher, Jonathan Smith's losses as head coach, 17, or the number of presidents to be elected to two or more terms. He gave the answer as over, I think I said under, you said over, and listed off the 21 presidents to have served more than one term. However, four of those 21, Teddy Roosevelt, Calvin Coolidge, Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, were elevated to the office due to their predecessor's death and were only subsequently elected a single time, i.e. they were not elected to two or more terms. Therefore, the answer is actually 17, which would be a push. What do you feel about that, Dave? I guess great fact-checking. <laughs> so neither of us got it, I guess. Fun fact about John Tyler, everybody's favorite presidential baby daddy. He was born in the 18th century, 1790, uh, and yet still have living grandchildren. He, had, he had eight children with his first wife, seven with his second wife. His 13th child, uh, Lion Tyler, was born in 1853 when he was 63 years old. Lion had children with multiple wives, including Lion Jr., 1924, and Harrison, 1928, both of whom are still alive. Holy crap. <laughs> John Tyler has two alive grandchildren. Yeah, no, that's, a, that, that's one of my favorite facts about John Tyler. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, no, that's, that's like Taylor, time, Tyler. That's, that's time travel. Like, that is crazy. 1790. Yeah. Like, pre-photography. Like, imagine, like, you're just, a, you're just living here in 2020 with your grandfather having been somebody who was born in 1790. That's insane. Uh, all right, so he has a question. Which 20th or 21st century president would most likely to win in a fight? Oh yeah, hell yeah! You could okay. base you could base your answer on physical condition while president. He says, "I like Teddy Roosevelt and Obama," or based on their prime, Ford and Reagan uh, get interesting. Uh, or you could allow them to to use as a weapon the the sporting equipment they are most associated with. So, Obama gets a basketball, Trump gets a golf club, George H. W. Bush gets a baseball bat, George W. Bush gets a cheerleader megaphone, etc. Uh, keep up the good work. Two months away from probably not actually getting to watch college football sniff Matt and Mountain View. Okay. Um, Lyndon Johnson was really big. Like Lyndon Johnson was like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, which puts him in the upper echelon of big presidents. Um, also from Texas. Um, he might be one of my picks. Gerald Ford's not bad. Um, obviously athletic. Reagan, for similar reasons, also a pretty big guy. Um, I think I'll go LBJ, though. 
LBJ. Teddy Roosevelt was like an asthmatic. Like I'm not picking Teddy Roosevelt. Like no. You know I. I don't know if it's just recency bias, but like, I think Obama could kick a lot of ass, you know? No, like Obama, if it's like, um, if you have to like run a triathlon and then kick somebody's ass, then yeah, okay, Obama, fine. But I mean, Obama's like 150 pounds. Like, he's a really fit dude, but is he stepping in with like a tank like Lyndon Johnson? Yeah. Somebody who's got reach on him and some power and probably 60 pounds. Yeah. What know. about George Washington chopping down cherry trees with a with an axe? I know. Well, actually, if you're really if we're going historic, Abraham Lincoln, I mean, you're talking about a rail splitter, six four. Yeah. That dude, that dude could probably probably beat some people up. Hmm. Te- like when I think tough, though, like Teddy Roosevelt comes up, you know, like. Yeah, it's, just, it's it's a rep thing. It's based on the stuff he said. But like, we're not talking about a, like a physically imposing guy. Yeah. I mean, he, he was, you know, he was an asthmatic. He was a he was a uh, he was a New York fop who like tried to like self-improve by becoming a Western rough rider type guy. But I mean, that is hard. He's just a New York City boy. Okay. Um, so I, I, yeah, I gotta go with LBJ here for 20th century. Um, and if we're going all time, you know, my man Lincoln uh, could definitely beat some ass. Yeah, Obama's like Hawaiian too, right? Like he was over in Hawaii. Like that's you can't be too tough. You can't be too tough on Hawaii. <laughs> like you wear board shorts, you go out in the water. Like again, if you want, if you want, if it's a marathon, like if, if okay, all the presidents, you got to get ready and you got to run a marathon. He's the only one who survives, let alone maybe W was in pretty good shape too. Maybe he can yeah. run the marathon too. Uh, but you you want to like an actual fight? No, I don't think I don't think Barack Obama's beating and, anybody's butt. And the the first Bush, I mean, he got shot down. Right over, uh, over yeah, like Japanese waters. Like, are and like, we talking about? The, I'm talking about them as presidents. Like once yeah. they got to that point. Like if we're talking about them at like 18, yeah. I mean, somebody who probably fought in a war or whatever. Um, you know, they probably had to be in pretty good physical shape when they did that. Yeah. I mean, all right. Obama was like a pot smoking college student. When he was <laughs> um, like I'm, I'm imagining me. I'm like I'm not winning any fights when I was 18. Nice. Um, okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. Next up, uh, this is from Kyle. UCLA versus USC. Hi, guys. Who would win in a one-off neutral site game between the best US- USC players ever versus the best UCLA players of all time? The one caveat being the teams are coached by Clay Helton and Carl Durrell 1.0. Holy crap. Who would watch that game if it was coached by those two guys? Yeah, that would be – I, I think – I mean, yeah, I think USC just has too many – yeah, too, this too is USC. I think, especially when you're talking about the number of um, particularly um, offensive linemen and wide receivers that USC has produced um, versus defensive linemen and defensive backs UCLA has produced, I think that side of the ball would just be there'd be a little bit of a mismatch there. Like, not I'm I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I just don't. Yeah, that would be, I think, a little bit too much of a challenge. Um, the other side of the ball would be interesting. I mean, I think UCLA would have Troy Aikman back there, um, chucking it to some pretty talented guys. But yeah, I think that would be a USC win. 
Yeah, if it was like Clay Hilton versus Terry Donahue, then, you know, maybe. Yeah, if it was like Clay Hilton versus Red Sanders, then, yeah, I think the (laughs) UCLA team wins. But if we're, I mean, we're talking about relatively even coaches there with Hilton and Durrell. So, yeah, yeah, you got to give it to the talent there. And I think USC certainly has a historical claim to more talent. Um, All right. Next up, we got Keon. Uh, Is this a real email? Wait, yeah, it it is. It is. It's real. It's real. UCLA lures an unexpected apparel offer. Boys, this week, adult entertainment webcam company, Cam Soda, offered UCLA $205 million over 10 years to fill the void left by Under Armour. And he sources uh, Darren Heitner on Twitter. It says, you won't bother to click the link. He put It said, so it's, it's a letter from Cam Soda to UCLA Athletic Director Martin Jarmon. Um... Uh, basically offering $205 million, uh, and it's from the vice president of Camp Soda, Darren Parker. Uh, he says, now they probably would have been better off making a joint offer to Wazoo and Oregon State, but I guess UCLA is the high-profile apparel deal opening, so they had to try and get in there while they could. Aside from the absurdity and hilarity of this particular apparel deal offer, this got me thinking, for each Pac-12 school, what is the most amusing brand or company you can think of as a potential apparel sponsor? Oh God! Oh, well, was there anything in this thing I should read? Uh, well, no, no, no. Just the 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 big nut is that Cam Soda is a adult webcam company. Like it's for cam girls and stuff. Um, so it's basically like if you want to advertise a porn company on your you know stuff. Okay. But so it just says- got me thinking. Why can't? So if somebody like Cam Soda or Pornhub or whatever wanted to pay you twenty five million dollars a year. To basically just put their stuff on your uniforms, just go buy your uniforms wholesale or whatever from whoever, and then just stick the stupid emblem on them. Who do you care if your UCLA brought to you by Pornhub? What do you care? Take the yeah. money and run. I mean, Camp Soda, like Pornhub sounds like a porn company. Camp Soda, I never heard of before. Yeah. And, and, and their logo is blue. And they said that he said in the email, blue and, lo- blue and gold will go smashing with our logo. Basically, they want to put the Cam Soda logo on that would appear on all their team uniforms. Um, he gave his email and sent that out there. Uh, yeah, I mean, for something like Cam Soda, I don't. I mean, people would talk about it. Like, what's the one? What did the Warriors have on their uniform? Like, I didn't know what it was. It was some retail company or something. And I'm like, well, I don't know what that is. It could have been a porn site for all I know. I didn't know what it was, you know. And I think. Isn't like Timber, like Tinder or Bumble or someone is a is a sponsor for one of the pro teams. Um, I think one of the NBA teams. So I don't know what. Why not? You're going to make two hundred five million dollars. Heck, it's probably worth it. Yeah, and I'm sure it's not a serious offer. But if that actually came out that they they got a serious offer, I think it. You know, you have to make sure it aligns with your values. I know there's some. I think some of these. Uh, I know there's been like contentions about Pornhub in particular that they actually have housed a lot of like unsavory amateur like potentially criminal stuff on their site which yeah you don't want to mess around with that but if they check out and it's above board and legal i don't know man just take the money um so anyway that's long story short ucl is probably not going to take a 205 million dollar offer from cam soda but in theory like if i don't know just any random company that wasn't an apparel company wanted to be a uh, sponsor that you have to put on your uniforms, like 
you know, so some tire company wants to, you know, Michelin wants to be your, uh, your, your apparel sponsor. Okay. Take their money and then just go buy some uniforms. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, so Bumble, the Clippers have Bumble on their uniform. So they're a sponsor and it's Rakuten, um, is, uh, they paid the Golden State Warriors $60 million for a three year Jersey sponsorship in 2017. Um, so it's some kind of, uh, do you know what that is? It's like some kind of retail company or something. No, I don't know what that is. Yeah. But I, I looked at them like, what is that? And then when I saw Bumble on the Clippers thing before, I'm like, what the heck? They got Bumble on their, their, uh, uniforms so yeah you could put cam soda on there like i wouldn't know what it is most people probably wouldn't and then they figure it out and it would be good uh pr for camp soda it's probably worth their money yep um and then he this uh, the i don't know man amusing brands i think it'd be oh, funny if crap, oregon yeah. was sponsored by adidas but i don't know if that's funny <laughs> um hmm. yeah that's a tough one i would have to think about that for a while nothing's like yeah. I, I don't know. That's tough. That's yeah. hard. You know, you could have like Arizona State or Mary Arizona sponsored by like an Alaskan cruise line. I don't know. Something. USD <laughs> would be Trojan condoms, right? Oh, yeah, you could. That's an easy one. Um, the Bruins, like a bear repellent company. I, I don't know. I don't know. That sounds tough. That's tough, Keon. We're sorry. Yeah. All right. We could be funny. Uh, I don't know about that one. That was a tough one. Too. That one's a tough one because it requires us to know a bunch of brands and apparel things. And we don't know anything. All right. This is from John and Brad. In the year 2030. Hello, Ryan and Dave. Thank you for being amazing. Remind me to give you a five-star review. John, this is your reminder to give us a five-star review. Please fast forward to the year 2030. Can each of you respond to one of the following prompts? Give us the fictionalized history of how the COVID-19 pandemic led to the demise of the Pac-12 conference. Ooh. Mm. Okay. Uh, Larry Scott, after seeing that the Ivy League canceled all fall sports, followed suit within 24 hours, decided to cancel all fall sports, sending all the college athletes home and ending Pac-12 football. The following week, uh, new COVID-19 um, therapies have come out to make the, you know, the virus less deadly and other conferences decided to continue to go on. And the college football, it's one of the most successful college football seasons in history and it left the Pac-12 out and the Pac-12 is no longer a power five conference. How's that? I've got it. I've got the flip side of that. Okay. In response to a suggestion made on a um, highly listened to uh, co podcast covering the conference where it was suggested that if the Pac-12 doesn't play sports in the fall, Larry Scott should forego his salary. He decides unilaterally to forge ahead with a fall football season, full slate of games in which uh, all the overhead is put in place to play games throughout the season. All the network positions are filled. All of the game day staff are paid for and all that kind of stuff. And then not a single game is played because all of the teams are constantly in quarantine. But all of the money is invested in starting up a season. And the Pac-12 goes bankrupt. Wow. I like that. All right. Yeah. Yeah. A couple different ways. Because he wants to keep his salary. All right. B. 
Give us the fictionalized history of how the COVID-19 pandemic led to the Pac-12 conference producing four of the last 10 national champions in football. I think this is kind of like an offshoot of yours where the Pac-12 shuts down. The rest of the, the, rest of the, co- the country goes ahead and it's a disaster. And everyone gets sick. Coaches are dying. Players are in the hospital for months. And it just decimates their college football programs, leading the Pac-12. So the Pac-12 comes back fully healthy and starts dominating over the next 10 years. I don't mean to laugh, but I love that the scenario where the Pac-12 ends up being a dominant football program, and by that we mean uh, a dominant football conference, and by that we mean four of the last 10 national championships, has to involve a global pandemic (laughs) taking out all of the other leagues. Like That has to happen as a prereq for this to happen. Um, so another option, um, okay. all the other leagues forge ahead. They all show themselves to be completely irresponsible. Larry Scott has wisely decided not to play football this year, foregoes his salary. And then when all the leagues have, you know, stopped and started their way through a season that finishes with like the most any team plays is like four games. The Pac-12 is like, okay, well, we're going to play our nine games in the spring. They play all nine of their games, and they are awarded whatever national championship is coming out of that. And they look responsible to all future recruits, and so they see a big uptick in recruiting. And then that leads to a collective golden era for the Pac-12 schools. So an offshoot of yours, but similar. I like that. I think that's – but both of us came up with ways that were not – where the Pac-12 doesn't play. Is there one where the Pac-12 plays? Um, the only way, no, no, there's no way where they <laughs> play this fall where they end up being the most dominant program over the next 10 years. Yeah, probably not. No. All right. Um, okay. And then he says, if you don't want to talk about COVID-19, please substitute Larry Scott for the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> Peace, John and Brad. Thanks, John. Yeah. A is easy for that one because it's happened already. Yeah. And and B is if he retires early. And I think that's, yeah. Yep. If you're putting Larry Scott there. Oh, my God. Oliver, what what, what is this? Um, what is this email? Okay. Here, I, will, I will Google this. Hang on. It's Emiyeli uh, Onamoya Omade. Maluga in Oregon. I have no idea if I said any of that correctly. It's the Joja language of Zimbabwe. Oh. Anyway, Uh, okay. So we have some Zimbabwe stuff dash Oregon. I don't know what any of that means. Uh, Hi, guys. The volume of questions seemed a little lacking last week, so I'm doing my best Hitler Day impression by writing you a 1,500-word Missive to keep Dave on his toes. Unfortunately, I got this one, but uh, okay. I've heard ad nauseum from media and fans that Mario Cristobal is an OL savant, but for whatever reason, I've always been a bit skeptical. Are you guys on the bandwagon that he's an elite offensive line coach and that Oregon's offensive line will reload? I think he's I think he's up there. I mean, just being an offensive line coach in itself, a head coach in itself, I think is is meaningful. I don't know. I can't give you the merits of he's like the best, you know, he can teach you the best footwork or whatever. But I think overall he's a, you know, just the fact that he focuses on the offensive line is a big deal. 
But I, I think he's a, a, a good offensive line coach. I'm not an expert in offensive line coaches, but what do you think, Dave? I don't. Um, I, he hasn't had that rep for me, or from what I've heard. Um, like, I've, you hear it about some guys, like the old Oregon offensive line coach, but his name's escaping me now. Um, who was it? Cal just recently. What's his name? Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Crap. Yeah, that, uh, that guy. That guy. Um, you hear it, you've heard about him a ton. Cristobal, I haven't really heard it a bunch. I just know he's an OL guy who then was an OL coach. Um, I'm kind of skeptical of any like position coaches being like truly game-changingly elite. Um, most position coaches are there for recruiting um, and to be competent. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there are some very elite guys. I know there have been some guys who've been very good in the past, but no, I'm skeptical of anybody as like an OL savant um, or any position savant. I think that's going to be a very, very small um, group of people who actually end up being that elite position coaching. Yeah, he nailed it, too. He says, now that you've likely pontificated for five <laughs> minutes using your admittedly feeble memories, I'll provide you data collected on his track record of recruiting and developing linemen. I've excluded recruits from 2018 to 2020 classes because we don't know how they'll turn out yet with the obvious exception of Penny Sewell. Okay, so overall recruiting since 20, 2004 at Power 5 jobs, he's had three five-stars, 19 four-stars, nine three-stars, and one two-star. That's I think that's pretty good. Uh, overall development of those recruits, one first-rounder, and it'll be two next year, one second-rounder, one fifth-rounder, one sixth-rounder. So he's questioning development. He recruited additional 19 linemen at FIU, all two- and three-star players, and you guessed it, none of them got drafted either. And it's FIU. I mean, that's, I'm not yeah. going to like fault him that. Uh, this seems really underwhelming to me. Obviously, some of the undrafted guys became starters, but none of them won accolades in college or caught on with an NFL team as an undrafted free agent. There were a ton of guys that were washed out. Of the 19 four-stars he recruited, only one was drafted in the fifth round. As I researched more, I think he's gotten a lot of credit for taking over established offensive lines the year before. They were drafted, Eric Winston, Vernon Carey, uh, Ryan Kelly, etc. Or closing recruits he never coached, uh, Jaderic Willis and Alex Leatherwood. Uh, with essentially the pick of the litter as a recruiter, I think the best you can say is that he developed five stars into high draft picks. Uh, Bradley Bozeman was his three-star success story, but committed a one and a half years before Cristobal joined the staff. So you can make an argument that he lucked into that one too. Additional details below if you want to check my math. Also, I think Washington State's going to be sneaky good next year. I love their DC hire. Stanford is going to finish last in the North. Love the show. Oliver, P.S. Uh, just put the title in the Google Translate to figure out what it says. Oh, did you it do that? Says, it says long-winded mail about. <laughs> <laughs> long-winded mail about Oregon. Very nice. And then it's a long spreadsheet with detailed information that uh, he says we won't look at and we're not going to. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's I see decibel points out to four places like, uh, yeah, we don't need that. Yeah, no, but it's great. It's great. Um, yeah, I think uh, I could buy the Washington State thing. I'm mostly with you on Stanford, too. I think I'm going to pick Stanford to finish. Probably. I think I did pick him to finish last or close, but I don't know, I, I'm not as high on Washington State, but. Uh, it's just tough when you get a new coach. You have a new coach and no time to prepare. Like, that's and what I have the biggest issue. And there's also not going to be a season, so everyone's last. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> All right, this is from Andrew in Massachusetts. Uh, conference scheduling with Notre Dame. Longtime listener, second time emailer. Cal's 2022 trip to South Bend, which was scheduled five years ago in January 2020, makes me wonder: Should the conference look to expand its scheduling with Notre Dame overall beyond USC and Stanford? For example, Oregon State could improve on their 2-0 all-time record against the Irish, and seeing the Irish visit places like Autzen, Folsom Field, and Husky Stadium would presumably help the conference's schedule, strength of schedule and bring more eyeballs to the Pac-12. Thanks for reading and keep up the good work, Andrew in Massachusetts. I think they scheduled that in like 2015, right? He said it was scheduled five years ago, 2020, so that, that can't be right. Um, yes. I think it was scheduled correct. a while ago. Unless he's that, being funny. Oh, oh, and, man. It just, and it feels like it was five years ago because I, it was. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Might be being funny. Yes, that's probably it. I don't remember when it was scheduled. So if it was scheduled in January 2020, he's definitely being funny, and it is funny. If we would have remembered when it was scheduled, which I did not. Maybe I think did. it was scheduled very recently, so I think okay. it's funny. And that that pretty much was five years ago. Uh, Andrew, I think the biggest problem is because Notre Dame has the affiliation with the ACC. I mean, that's like, you know, five games of the schedule, right? I don't know if you want to play more than, you know, three Pac-12 teams every year. I think it could be a thing where you would add a Pac-12 schedule besides Notre Dame and Stanford. I mean, USC and Stanford every other year or something. You you play a, a Pac-12 team. I don't know if they would want to, with their schedule, have three Pac-12 teams and five ACC teams every year because they're going to play, you know, a big 12, a big 10 team or two. They try to schedule some other big game somewhere. Um, you know, you got what Navy and uh, I don't know, like BC. Like, well, that's part of their ACC thing. I don't know. I mean, I, it might be tough, but I, I would like, I, you know, I love seeing Pac-12 play Notre Dame. Uh, it's a team I'm familiar with because I get to see them every year because they, you know, covering USC. But I, I don't know if they'd want, a regular, you know, regularly having three Pac-12 teams on the schedule. Yeah, I and I, I yeah, it wouldn't work because they've got like seven different rivals or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think one every now and then works fine. I mean, UCLA had a series with them back in the early 2000s or mid 2000s. Um, they've had on again, off again series with a couple other schools in the league. So I don't think that's I think that's something they like to do on occasion, um, but I don't see anything beyond Stanford and USC being a regular part of the rotation for them just because, I mean, they've got so many obligations that are just built in every single year as it is um, that as, as more than just an add on every now and then I don't see it happening. Yeah. All right. This is uh, our buddy Santa Barbara, Larry. I got all the long ones this week. Football really to did. keep our players safe. Uh, hey, Dave and Ryan, Santa Barbara, Larry here again. I've heard crazy numbers in the media about how many college football players might die from COVID-19 if they play this year. For example, 1%. Um, wait, what? One, so he's saying 1% of college football. He's giving an example of number. Okay. Okay, so he's t- saying that's a crazy thing. For example, 1% of them might die. Yeah. Which, Got it. I don't know if that's... Yeah. That would be crazy. That would I be mean, insane. If, if that many people died, yeah, that would be bad. It would be insane if 0.1% of college football players died of this because they're not in that category. Um, the question is if at 0.01%, is that an acceptable thing? Um, which that's probably more likely what it would be. Yeah. Dude, it, like the first time a college, if a college football player dies, like, does the season shut down? Like, I don't know. I mean, it's like, 
Dude, there's no, positive. Like, what season? What season? What season are you talking about? No, I'm assuming about? we're like, if you're starting the season and somehow like. Yeah. Yeah, like, no, but that's the thing. Like, if you start it in September and somebody dies, like, it's not going to. No, uh, the season will be over. I would think so. because They're like, stopping they, voluntary workouts because they're getting positive tests right now. Like, right. Ohio State and Kansas have both stopped voluntary workouts just because of positive tests, let alone something actually. And we don't know. Maybe people are in the hospital, but I, I think they would have told us. Um, but if somebody actually died of this in the college football world, yeah, I think the season would be over that day. So he goes on, it forced me to take a hard look at the numbers. Here are the findings for my exhaustive five-hour study. He had a five-hour study, and it's like three points. We get emails that go on forever about way less. Uh, it was surprisingly hard to find data needed for the analysis. The popular media is totally consumed with the number of positive infections, a data set which by itself is pretty much meaningless. My best guess that out of 81,000 college football players in the U.S., Somewhere between uh, 3.1 and 31 will die from COVID-19. Whoa. Uh, I can send you the analysis. The number is very low because the rate that people 18 to 24-year-old with no underlying health conditions, I, uh, for example, football players, that come down with COVID-19 and wind up in the hospital and, that, and then die is extremely small. I have the fatality rate at 0.04 uh, or 0.004% of those infected. Finally, my analysis is pretty much meaningless. I asked the wrong question. The correct question is, would the fatality rate be higher if college football players were playing football or not? I heard an NFL team doctor say that a football player would be far safer from COVID-19 playing football on campus than not. If playing football, he would be in a significantly more controlled environment with substantially more testing and health resources than he would otherwise be available, otherwise would have available. So if no one is truly concerned about the health of the Pac-12 college football players, wouldn't logic dictate that they should be on campus practicing and playing football? It would be awesome if you guys could drag up some uh, epidemiological experts. Epidemiological. Not epidemiological. Not a skin guy. We want want an epidemic doctor, not a uh, skin one. Yeah. Uh, Experts from UCLA and USC medical schools on your show to get their read on college football especially those involved in the USC antibody, ant, antibody, antibody story. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, thanks for the pod. I'm running out of steam here, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Santa Barbara, Larry. Okay, so um, two things. I think your math is more or less right. Um, I just did some, like, back-of-the-envelope stuff, and I came out with eight. Basically, if 81,000 college football players play, maybe 10% of them get it. And then of that 10% who get it, that's like 8,100, maybe like eight of them die. I'm going at like 0.001. So, you know, that's like 0.01% somewhere in the middle. Um, But so I think that's right. Um, I think you're right on the fatality rate. Now, the other point, the three, the number three point I think is interesting, but I think it's kind of, this is where I think people get, they get too siloed in what they're thinking about with this, because the reason to stop college football is not to necessarily protect the players themselves, although that might be the impetus for eventually shutting it down. Um, but the reason is uh, public health. Um, the problem is we haven't like knocked this thing down at all. Like if you look at all these other countries around the world, most of them that are starting things up again have shut this thing down to the point where you're only having like 300 cases a day, 500 cases a day. 
we're like trucking along at basically every day having over 50,000 right now. And it's not slowing down, it's speeding up. In addition to that, deaths are now climbing again. Um, there was a big talking point last week. Oh, deaths are still sliding. Well, now they're climbing again. We haven't done any of the work to like solve that problem. So we still have a, a general public health crisis. What you do in a public health crisis where it's an infectious disease that spreads between people is you try to limit the interactions of people. You try to keep them from interacting as much with each other. And so football, college football, 81,000 people playing a sport, high respiration, breathing in each other's faces, combining, joining together in locker rooms, all that kind of stuff. That's a potential area to spread the virus among these people who may or may not get serious complications from it, but are less likely to. And then they spread it to other people on campus, their coaches, their coaches' families, their families, so on and so forth. It's a vector of the illness. It's not any more important or any less important than other vectors. It's just another vector. So the reason you would shut down college football if you're actually thinking about this proactively, which is something we don't do in this society anyway, but if you are thinking about it proactively, you would do it for public health not because of the any specific danger to these players, although there is a not insignificant amount of danger. I mean, we just did the math together, Larry, and between 331 or eight people die. Um, but I think it, it's a public health issue, not necessarily just individual, whether or not this individual has risk because it's an infectious disease. Yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting points there. I don't, is there... Is there any merit, though, to like saying it's better to have players on campus? Like even now, even if there's no season, is it better for players to be in a controlled environment? Is it better for so better compared to what? Them just being in their homes. Well, so this is where it gets into and like not to get like into the dystopia, but this is where it gets into. Well, if we're comparing it against. The fact that we're not going to do anything to actually mitigate these problems, like we're not actually going to go like if we the, the reality is that the best thing we could do is what everyone else did and what we could still do and what we failed at doing starting in March, which is, OK, shut the whole thing down again for six weeks. Everyone, literally everyone stay home. We're going to pay everyone to stay home. There's not going to be any debts, rents, mortgages, payments, no obligations whatsoever. Everyone's staying home. You're not going to collect any income aside from what we're paying you, the government, every month until this thing's done. And it's going to be six weeks and then it'll be knocked down. We're not willing to do that. Um, so with that not happening, um, yeah. I mean, if, if they're going to have guys not play football, and then they still have to like, I don't know, go find jobs or continue to go to class or whatever else is open, then yeah, it's probably stupid to just pick football to mitigate. Um, but there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of room in between the two extremes. Um, I think that's where we're gonna end up landing, which is some states are probably gonna go back to a near lockdown would be my guess. California is probably among them. Um, some states aren't. Um, and we're just going to have this whole thing drag out for a really long time. But I think in terms of the football players themselves, um, it really depends on what we do societally. Because if, if, the, if the solution is what every, again, what every other country did, which is we're just going to pay you to stay home, please stay home, then no, they're better off staying home. 
um, because then they're not introducing risk to themselves and they're also not introducing risk to all of the trainers, all of the coaches, all of the people around the program who have to be around the program when the players are there. I mean, coaches, you're talking about a lot of 50 and 60 and even some 70-year-old men. Um, there's going to be a higher percentage of deaths among coaches than there are among players. And if you have football, those people are taking on a lot of risk. Now, if those people are staying in their homes, their families are taking on a lot of risk. Um, there's a whole nesting thing that becomes a, an issue if you have football um, or have any organized activity that's outside of your own little circle of, of family or whatever because you're interacting with people during a pandemic, which, which is an infectious disease. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I buy it in a narrow sense that it might be safer for these particular players in some, you know, un immeasurable way. Sure. But as like a public health matter, no, no. And any situation where you're having people interact in large groups is not safer than the alternative if the alternative is not doing that, you know, yeah. interacting in small groups or no groups at all. Yeah, it makes sense. All right. And it's Way not a great answer. Day. We don't like it. Uh, like, I, I wish we would just figure this thing out so we could play football and it would be fun. But it doesn't seem like we're interested in doing that. Yeah. Um, right. Final email. This is from Frank, Frank in Sacramento. Time to get real. Other than the NFL, there is going to be no football this year. This is going to ruin the plans for the kid planning to star in high school his senior year and get recruited. Look for fanatic football families to arrange for their kid to flunk high school and repeat their senior year or head to those wacky prep schools next year to create some 2021 game film. We already had Titus Tucker move from California to Alabama to play this fall. That's just the beginning of the craziness to come. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be high school football anywhere. Um, that makes zero sense. Um, I don't think there's going to be high school sports at all. Do you disagree? No, and that's it's so... Yeah, we cover recruiting, so we get to talk to players, their parents and stuff. And I get, I mean, I get questions maybe daily about, you know, hey, what do you think is going to happen? And, you know, we've seen kids transfer to, to you know, from you know, lower programs to higher, you know, more prominent programs in an attempt to, you know, hopefully have a college football season. But the kind of testing and the kind of resources that would go into a college program to try and keep everybody safe. You can't do that at high school level. Like could say John Bosco probably, but is Inglewood high school going to be able to do that? No. Like they're, I mean, they barely get uniforms and stuff half the time. So mm -hmm. what, I don't know how I, you could probably have elite high schools play each other. And that would be about it. I can't imagine this isn't like, Power five, group of five. This would be like only the Ivy League could play and everyone else couldn't, you know, like that the the highest not the Ivy League is the highest level of, of football, but just saying like a really small group of high schools, I think, could play safely and and probably do it as good as a college could do it. You know, you're Bishop Gorman in Las Vegas. Like they I mean, they got Oregon type uniforms. They got like eleven uniforms, they have nicer weight rooms than a lot of colleges. Like they would probably be fine. But there's so many other colleges, I mean, high schools that you go out and cover. And it's it's great, though, covering these. Pro like, it's it's something you go to Bishop Gorman, you're like, this is amazing. But when you go to, like, some of the smaller schools or some of the less funded schools, like, I like doing that more. It's just a little grittier. But 
I don't see how those schools could be able to produce the kind, you know, have the kind of resources you would need to, to produce college, I mean, high school football safely. Yeah. And I mean, if you extrapolate a little bit further than that too, it's, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how school happens um, because I think there's been a lot of planning over the summer. I mean, I've got kind of my, my, my nose to all of this stuff because I'm, you know, I, I, I work in school as my day job, but also um, I think a lot of the planning that was started in June and July was prepping for us still being on a downswing of this pandemic. And now with an upswing started at least regionally again, it's going to be really interesting to see how how feasible it becomes to even have school. Um, because the same thing we were saying about coaches and, and you know, that applies to teachers too. And yeah. maybe even more so because they're going to be in classrooms. And, I mean, we all had teachers and they there was a wide range of ages, but I had some teachers who were in their 60s for sure. Um, and you've you know, uh, they're going to be in a classroom with kids and at the elementary levels, look, I can tell my kids to stay away from me as much as I want. Are they going to stay away from me? No, hell no. Little kids, they, they get up on you and they get up on each other and expecting social distancing. Yeah. The children, it does not appear still that they get seriously ill. Although there's like the occasional anecdotal thing. That's obviously a big concern, but that their teachers certainly can. Um, so I'm really interested to see because I haven't seen many teachers unions weigh in on a lot of these plans, but I really want my kids to go back to school. But I, <laughs> that's an ideal world thought. Um, I, I don't I don't know if that's going to be safe enough for everyone involved to justify the risk. And I understand. Look, I, I intimately understand the issues with having your kids at home all day. Like my my eldest daughter is not doing well with it. And my youngest is learning everything about the television. Um, and it's not great, but the alternative where we open up school and X percentage of teachers die because we opened up school doesn't seem palatable to me either. Um, we've got a, a really messy situation here with imperfect solutions, but I would prefer to pick the solution that ends with, the fewest people having their lives ended. Um, that's just my personal thinking on it. And yeah, there's there's no perfect one. Um, and I think there is some element of this where you do have to make some concessions to the fact that things still need to keep going and things need to keep moving. But I don't know if just like kind of closing our eyes, shutting our eyes and pretending everything is normal is the way to go. Um, yeah. You know, and that's, it seems like that was maybe the the attempt being made. And it I, I just as we get further and further into July, especially with the way we're feeling about football, I think that's going to start to translate to these other things, too, where it's just is this really going to work? And it just it seems like it's not. Yeah. Um, it's not yeah. good. I don't like it. Yeah, the school thing is going to be interesting to watch, too, just school in general. But, man, I don't. Well, with I don't these know. Don't get depressed, Dave. Up, yeah, no, it's uh, it's, and I'm not like, and I'm not even trying to be negative. It's more just like you look at the the stuff that's out there. I mean, Harvard decided to go fully online. UCLA and USC have both decided their falls are going to be online. Well, if they're deciding to do that, that's, 
I mean, that's an indication. If Harvard can't afford to do the testing or they can't put the apparatus in place, what makes you think your local public high school is going to do a great job of it? Yeah, they won't. <laughs> well, that's the thing is they won't. And what's our acceptable level of risk for, you know, the people involved in public school, for all those teachers, for all those principals, for all those dining staff, for all that stuff? Like, what's our... What's our acceptable mortality rate for those people? Because there's going to be one. If we open up school, like a lot of those people are going to die. Um, and it's just, I think a lot of people talk about it in theory, like, well, you know, we, we can't just shut everything down and, and hope nobody dies. And it's like, okay, but that does come with a very literal cost that's going to be people's lives. Um, and no, there isn't a situation where nobody dies of this, but are there workable solutions where we can get this to a it's just it's it gets frustrating to talk about because the the reality is everyone else in the world has figured this out more or less and we just can't get out of our own way yeah we don't seem to be good at that nope <sighs> but all right well i'm totally depressed so yeah cool we ended it on a cheerful note and i'm happy about it uh yeah well I mean, I think it was informative. We have a lot of packed full of talk, so that's good. It's true. It's true. Uh, hopefully, uh, honestly, hopefully something gets really figured out in the next like couple of days, and we can have a much more optimistic show next week. I Maybe? would hope so. Let's let's hope. Uh, or at least there will be news about um, all the things falling apart. Either way, yeah. there will be something to talk about. We'll should keep it going. We thanks yeah thanks for all the questions and everybody that sent in stuff. That was great. That really helps us move along. And thanks for all the reviews. Those were awesome. They're really good ones. So if you guys like the show, don't like the show, please uh, leave us those reviews on Apple Podcasts. Again, five stars. But then say whatever you want about us, how, how we're dumb and crazy and can't read and all those kind of things. So um, we had Zimbabwe language. Was it, what is it? Zimbabwe? How, what's the language? of Was it Zimbabwe? Is that word? Zoja. Zoja. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Hang on. Kosa. Yeah. It's actually Kosa. So Kosa. it's an X H O S A, but it's pronounced Kosa. Kosa. Mm -hmm. And that's that's from Zimbabwe. That is Zimbabwe. That's nice. the Zimbabwe language. I don't think I've ever I don't know much about or really anything about Zimbabwe culture. Like there's are there Zimbabwe like I don't think there's any restaurants that I know of. Like there's like Ethiopian one. There's like a whole bunch of ones that you know, like in LA, like there's different districts and stuff. There's probably one with Zimbabwe in there too, but I don't know. I have I've never sampled uh, Zimz Zimbabwean cuisine, so I don't know. Um, yeah. Couldn't tell you. I know it's one of the African countries where English is, I think, one of the um, standard languages because it was one of many places that was colonized by the British. Okay. Uh, so, and it was also, I think it was part of the whole South African conglomerate of nations that kind of broke off. Gotcha. Like third apartheid times. Um, did you ever go on a Fairfax to like the yeah, Ethiopian district? Ethiopian. I didn't love Ethiopian food um, just because the, the sourdough part of the, it was a little too much for me. I didn't like the, the sour bread as much. I it was, really, it was a really sour. fun experience. Yeah, I, I just didn't. Something about the like actual taste of the food. I really like Indian food. I, I don't know if it was not spicy enough or I don't know. Anyway, it's similar um, consistency. It was a really interesting experience. It was a cool experience doing the kind of communal eating around the uh, 
the, which the, you can't the do now. Yeah, no, you can't do any of that stuff. But if you've never had it, so it's funny, they'll give you a little demonstration and they can do it really well, but there's like the spongy thin bread and it's sort of like curries and stuff. There's, you know, like piles of different, like some meats or vegetables, little dishes. And you take some of the bread and you pick up some of the, the meat or the vegetables, whatever the dishes, like the curry kind of looking stuff. And they spin it in their fingers. They make like almost like a little tortilla out of it. And you pop it in your mouth. And it's, it's pretty cool. Like I, I was not very good at doing it, but they, they could do it really well. I, I wasn't very good at it, but it, I thought it tasted good. Yeah. I don't know. How'd we get on that? So that's my bad. Zimbabwe. Uh, Zimbabwe to Ethiopia to whatever. All right. Well, that's David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thanks again for all the questions. And we will talk to you next time.